G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Yeah, I'm watching Eternals uh, next week, I think. Um, oh, is it this week? Yeah, next week. It's like the worst reviewed Marvel film ever, apparently, which doesn't surprise me because the trailers didn't look that good. Um, well, then I'm yeah, I, I really wondered how they were going to pull it off because they've really sort of gone up a, a tier in terms of the uh, esoteric kind of. Yeah. Oh, you mean like the super at the um? Yeah, it's not really grounded in Earth. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, we're sort of getting into these kind of ethereal. Yeah. Characters um, that are a bit more detached from. Uh, yeah. Reality. Yeah. Hmm. Less relatable. Yeah. Uh, also, pretty much unknown outside of you know folks like yourself. Well, that's true, but you could say that about Iron Man before two thousand and eight, or Guardians of the Galaxy, or uh, I don't know. I think a lot of kids grew up with well, yeah, Iron Man, Spider Man, that kind of thing for sure. But yeah, you're right. Like Guardians of the Galaxy, nobody would have heard of. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't know Ant Man. Yeah, Doctor Ant Strange. Man. I think I'd heard of Ant Man once. I'd never heard of Doctor Strange, Captain Marvel. You know, I don't mm. know. So yeah, I mean there is that, but you gotta you gotta wonder, like in a series that, well, in, in in a film that introduces a whole slew of new characters, they're not getting like their own sort of yeah. starring role and an introductory story and all that. You're not getting introduced to one character. Yeah, as a hero. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a large cast, and mm. yes, as you say, it's a lot of concepts to introduce, and they're pretty esoteric even in the comics. They've never been a huge hit, mm. um, but I guess they just wanted to expand the galactic scope. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I my interest in it, and I'm probably more interested in this than any other Marvel film that's come out recently. Oh. Um, I just want to see what they're doing with these themes and, you know, yeah. the the big picture uh, narrative that, that they're moving along here. Yeah. Because uh, I think, yeah, potentially uh, very interesting for uh, certainly for my line of study anyway. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the, uh, the Marvel and DC are pretty... Um... They're kind of similar, you know. They they use very biblical, well, Old Testament, literal uh, origins of the universe. You know, when they do tell the origins, it's usually they're both pretty similar, uh, but they change it every few years. I don't know what it is at the moment, but usually it's like birth by, you know, brothers at war or some cosmic beings or eons ago or a prophecy was, for, you know, it's all that kind of standard. Mm. fair that you see in these kind of uh, fantasy sci-fi kind of stuff it's nothing necessarily unique but it's all kind of like old testament but on it slightly tilted um yeah it's yeah. interesting yeah yeah well i think you know ancient cultures all, all over the world have these commonalities yeah and great floods and all that yeah I, I think whether they go for um a biblical angle or something else, you know, it's going to feel familiar because mm. it ties into those common themes and there's ways of talking about the world. Yeah, true. It does seem to resonate with people. 
because it keeps getting used, you know, it's like how many heroes are birthed in tragedy, you know, like orphans, Harry Potter and James Bond and Batman and Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Every Disney yeah. movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all right, I think we... You haven't got a lead character unless they've got dead parents. If you're uh, Walt Disney, you want to work in Sicko. <laughs> <laughs> We are back again for episode two of the second season of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And although we had our season opener last time with a Halloween special, this kind of feels like we're back to the start now because we're getting back into our regular routine of Bible study and other cool stuff that we do. Yeah, that's right. I'm getting excited. As well you should. So let's do it. Let's do it. All right, folks. Welcome to the first study of the second season of the podcast where we will be studying Genesis 2 as we continue our journey through the primeval history, that is chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis. Now, as we discussed last season, the seventh day of creation, which we find in the first three verses of Genesis 2, really belongs together with the previous six days. And since we covered those before, we won't be spending any time going back over day seven. So our study will begin in chapter 2 at verse 4. But that isn't to say that the transition from the creation narrative of chapter 1 into this new story in chapter 2 is a clean break. We're going to see that the text does some interesting things as it bridges the gap from the creation of the heavens and the earth to the story of what God begins to do with them. In one sense, the creation story of Genesis 1 stands alone from the rest of Scripture as its own little narrative within the broader story arcs of Genesis 1 through 4, Genesis 1 to 11, or the book of Genesis as a whole, the Torah as a unit, the Old Testament as the complete Tanakh, or the entirety of Scripture. And yet Genesis 1 integrates very well into the story that follows and indeed is inseparable as part of the primeval history. It would be fair to suggest that the entirety of the primeval history is simply a continuation of the grand creation narrative as it broadens its scope to encompass the world. So how do we deal with a situation in which we can see that there are clear differences between the narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, and yet we wish to recognise the unity between them? Are these kinds of questions best left to textual scholars and critical interpreters of Scripture, or can we glean from the text with the aid of an ancient Near Eastern worldview enough to understand what the author is doing here? Can we handle the text in such a way that makes sense of the information we have and helps us to understand the point being made by the original author? Will Shaggy ever see his beloved dog ever again? Uh, Tune in to find out as we go. Let's read the text first, and then we'll make some observations and see what we can find. Starting from verse 4, we'll open our season officially by reading almost the entire second chapter of Genesis from the NIV. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There's so much richness and, and goodness in that passage, and it's uh, quite a beautiful passage, a beautiful story of Scripture, really. Yeah, it certainly is. And now that we've got that fresh in our minds, let's go back to verse 4. We're going to spend the rest of this episode chewing over what we find there and seeing if we can make sense of it. So again, here's verse 4, just on its own. Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Seems kind of repetitive. Yeah, so right off the bat we've got issues with the text. because, Well, it's not necessarily bad translation, it's just the inadequacy of the English language to capture all that the Hebrew offers here in so many words. Eleh toledot. These are the generations. It's plural in the original. If it was a singular referent, we'd have something like maybe Zotha Tolada. This is the generation. Your pronunciation is on point as always. So why translate the plural as a singular then? Ah, because Toledot is more than generations. Uh, Toledot is a special kind of a story that connects us with our predecessors to connect our story to theirs. Toledot draws a line by genealogy from one point in the past to another more recent. It shows how what exists now came about as a result of what was before and is somehow related to it. And that's why it gets translated as generations. We need a word that captures the idea of a story, the story of bringing forth a succession, as in giving birth, because that's where we get Toledot from. Toledot comes from Yalad, to give birth, or, well, literally, what, what was brought forth uh, by extension. So what I mean by that is the Toledot formula might give us a succession of names, as in the genealogy of Adam in Genesis 5 where we start with Adam and we finish with Noah, but Eve didn't give birth to Noah. Noah has a place within Adam's Toledot. He does not come 
from Eve directly, like Cain's brother. I'm going to stop short on insisting that the Toledot formula must follow a strictly linear chronology, though, because there is a possible exception, and that is the Toledot that we're talking about right now, because now we're left with a giant question. If this is the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, does that mean that chapter 2 of Genesis is telling us that the heavens and the earth are the parents of Adam and Eve? On every other occasion where we find Toledot, it's at the start of a long list of names that descend from a common ancestor. And if you have a look, we find it in Genesis 5 verse 1 with Adam and Genesis 6 9 with Noah. In 10.1 with Shem, Ham and Japheth. In 11.10 with Shem. And in 11.27 it's Terah. In 25.12 it's Ishmael. 25.19 it's Isaac. 36.1 starts with Esau. 36.9 is another story of Esau. And 37.2 with Jacob. If that's anything to go by, it sounds like the heavens and the earth are our parents, which sounds very hippie, Gaia, Mother Earth, Captain Planet kind of stuff. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's not what's going on there. Um, yeah, it's let, let's have a look at what the use of the heavens and the earth actually does. Where we're going to get the biggest clue about what's going on here is in what comes before. Uh, well, actually, I mean what comes next. Um, before, uh, Hang on. It'll, it'll make sense in a minute. I don't have a minute, so can you tell me now? Uh, you're talking to a guy who originally watched the entire Back to the Future trilogy in reverse order. so. Great Scott! I know, this is heavy. When they were created, Behibariam is unique in Scripture and better read as when they were being created. Uh, so chapter 2, verse 4a should be rendered, well, Something like, these are what was brought forth, by extension, from the heavens and the earth when they were being created. And that puts the whole thing in perspective because it means that the Toledot is mentioned at the end, but it could have been at the start. It could have been in Genesis 1.1 because that first half of 2 verse 4 just summarized the whole first chapter. So it, it's in, it, in an unusual place, really. So why is the Toledot moved? To the end of the creation story then because in this story it's god who takes pride of place right up the front we talked all season long when we covered genesis 1 about how god allows natural processes to bring about the order he wants in the world how god directs creation with a word and naturally obeys him the author wants to stress that the creation of all these things was done by god so in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and they were created by God, not born out of a pre-existing universe, as the term Toledot might suggest. So we have the creation first, followed by the acknowledgement that the created things did indeed come from the heavens and the earth that God created. Thus, Toledot is appropriate in its place at the conclusion so as not to interfere with God's primacy in the beginning. So the referent for the Toledot is precedent to it, not what follows. Okay, that's all well and good, but aren't we cutting verse 4 in half, mid-sentence? Mm, well, it might look like that, but no, we're cutting a translated and artificially divided into verses, P. 
piece of text in half so we can restore its natural separation. Remember, as, as we know from verses 1 to 3 in chapter 2, these chapter and verse divisions are late additions to our translation, not part of the original text. And it turns out that chapter 1, if we're going to do it properly, ought to finish with 2 verse 4a, because the next narrative, the one we're studying this season on the podcast, doesn't start until we hit the second half of verse 4. So why isn't this just done properly and, and fixed? So chapter 1 ends halfway, like you're saying, through chapter 2 verse 4, or is that too out there and controversial? Well, to be honest, it's probably just a matter of practicalities and tradition rather than controversy. I don't think there's much argument about where the chapter division is supposed to be, but this system of division has been around for an awfully long time now. And it's one of the most widely circulated books in the whole world, so changing it now really seems kind of pointless. Better translations that are sensitive to genre and vocalisation wouldn't hurt, though. Let's continue. In the day, that, that phrase, in the day, really means when. We, we see this an awful lot in Scripture. We're going to really uh, see how that plays out, particularly as we continue through Chapter 2 in later episodes. Uh, we're very tempted to think about literal days because the word for day is used. It's yom in the Hebrew. When we see that, we have a tendency to go, right, well, this is a 24-hour period of alternating light and darkness, and that's what must be meant here. So we're looking for an exact day that we know we could pinpoint on the calendar, and that would be the day. But it should be clear enough to anyone who's done even the most casual word study on the, the biblical day that it really just means at the time, okay, because... A day could be, as the scripture says, like a thousand years. So rather than pressing literalism on this, we just need to know that it was like, you know, this one time. Now, recalling ancient Near Eastern creation stories and how they often begin setting the scene with a timestamp, uh, we're about to enter a new story with its own beginning. And translations like the RSV, the CSB, and the New Living Translation uh, pick up on this where. Many others do not, as a result of missing the significance of the unique form of Behibariyam when they were being created. And that formulaic opening phrase, in the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens, which are obviously meant to be separate if you know your ancient Near Eastern literature. So I mentioned those three translations, which I think at least get the division correct. Why don't we have a look at them now? Genesis 2 verse 4 in the RSV says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and then it goes on from there. And Genesis 2 4 in the CSB says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and again it goes on from there. And then in the NLT, same verse again. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and so on and so forth. It should be clear enough if you begin with in the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens that it's an introductory clause. It's only the beginning. So the beginning of what? For many people, Genesis 2 is a recapitulation or a second telling of the events of Genesis 1. We have a watery landmass, the absence of plants, the absence of man. But does that mean we are looking at a retelling of the same story? 
Part of the argument for recapitulation rests on the evidence that suggests a second author is in play because of the differences in vocabulary, style and structure that we find between Genesis 1 and 2, backed up by the presence of those common elements that I mentioned earlier. Personally, I'm not opposed to a second author since I think it's clear that much of scripture is compiled from various original sources and carefully redacted into a completed whole. I don't need a second author to make sense of my understanding of this text, but I certainly can't rule it out as a possibility. As far as mosaic authorship is concerned, once again, it is a possibility. You can't rule it out, but at the same time, you don't need it for the claims of Scripture to be true concerning the law of Moses. As far as we know, Moses may well have written the earliest forms of these primeval narratives, and he may not. I really don't think that it matters as long as we're honouring the intent of Scripture and as far as the attribution to Moses is concerned, it's not a hill to die on. Getting into the nitty-gritty of textual analysis, we can still call the Torah the law of Moses without having to insist that he wrote every word. Obviously, he didn't write the bit about his own death. He didn't write about things that happened thousands of years before he was born unless he was simply relaying that information from earlier sources. Whatever your view on that, it's beside the point. So... We're going to move on, but we're not out of the woods yet concerning the source-critical hypothesis. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Here God is introduced in a more personal way because we get his name, not just his title. And unfortunately, this new vocabulary has led many scholars to believe that we must have different authors and entirely different manuscript traditions being blended here in verse 4 because we now have a different name for God than what we had in chapter 1. And while that might sound reasonable, we've got to consider that this name of the Lord God, exactly as it appears here, appears many, many times in the Old Testament. It appears 20 times just here in Genesis 2 and 3. And yet we find it again in Exodus 9, just sitting there by itself, one solitary example in the remainder of the Torah, in what most critics would argue is an entirely unrelated source, according to that theory. All right, so... Just quickly, for those who are not familiar, the source-critical theory, otherwise known as the documentary hypothesis, is the idea that there were probably four major sources that contributed to the composition of the Torah, and these come from different time periods, different backgrounds, and have different emphases in their writing. They use different names to refer to God, they had different points to make in their recounting of events. Naturally, this is at odds with the traditional position that Moses was responsible for pretty much the entirety of the Torah. So you've got your four major sources, which have been entitled J, E, D, and P. J stands for the Yahwist because the J is pronounced Y in German. So here's your 19th century German critical scholars again. The J stands for Y, and they're talking about the Yahwist, who uses the name Yahweh to refer to God. So they have this hypothetical scribe who likes the name Yahweh, and they assume that this guy is a separate scribe to the others they're proposing in this hypothesis. We have a guy who uses Elohim rather than Yahweh, so he's called the Eloist. Following that, we have D, the Deuteronomist. So this is the guy who wrote Deuteronomy and contributed little bits and pieces here and there. Uh, he's followed by P, the priestly scribe, who is often considered to be the final redactor or composer of Scripture. He's all about religious observances and their ritual stuff and all these guys are hypothetical, by the way. We don't have an identity for any of them. It's just assumed that they must be different guys because of their different vocabulary and style. So certainly nobody was going to come out and say that one of these guys was Moses. Um, after all, they are critical scholars. So nobody's about to acknowledge that this idea that only one of them could possibly refer to God as Yahweh might be inaccurate or completely wrong. Um, 
so there's our there's our four uh, classic scribes in the source critical hypothesis. Uh, at this point, it's worth remembering that if you've got one example that breaks the paradigm, then you don't have a paradigm. This is just one of a great many examples where the documentary hypothesis has these outlying anomalies that scholars don't like to talk about because it's easy to have it all packaged nice and neat, and if you exclude all the exceptions to the rule, then it just makes the rule look good. I mean, we all joke about the English language and how we say I before E except after C, and then there are more exceptions to that rule than there are examples of it. Yes, that's very true. You know, for example, when your leisurely foreign neighbours, Keith and Heidi, seize their counterfeit heifer-driven sleighs from eight feisty caffeinated atheists of average height and weight in a heist, which is weird. And in fact, there's actually 923 words that break the I before E rule and only 44 words that actually follow the rule. So there that you go. That is weird. That is. That, that's a thing I know now. Uh, but yeah, that, that whole source critical hypothesis has really come under fire in recent years as we've slowly come to terms with the fact that we're more likely dealing with a single redactor who's often called the priestly source or just P in the academic literature who's credited with compiling and massaging much of scripture into its present form. By the end of the 1970s, that whole theory was pretty much destroyed. So we've gone from four sources down to just two? Yeah, well, you know, we were never going to get exact numbers because there is an untold number of hands attached to the text, and every so often someone would make a little tweak or a correction. And, and that's how inspiration works, okay? Don't let anyone tell you any different. And it continues to work, uh, in my opinion, but it would seem that the source-critical hypothesis is now dead in the water, despite the fact that you have a lot of old-school guys pushing that same narrative because they're not up with the more recent scholarship on the issue. We've learned so much lately, it pays to keep up. But you can see how slowly the wheels turn in the community of faith. And this is almost 50 years on, it's still getting pushed as a mainstream narrative today at every level from the academy to the pulpit, and that's not good. And they would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you medley kids and your dog. Like, groovy, man. Of course, I, I did suggest last season that the that I suspect that Ezekiel or perhaps a member of his prophetic school may have had something to do with the final composition of the primeval history in the exilic period. And we are going to spend a little more time in Ezekiel later on in this episode, which I think may strengthen that position. But again, it's not a hill to die on. And as I said, last season is probably above my pay grade to be trying to make those connections as an affirmation rather than a theory that seems to work for now. I will happily let the scholars debate that one. Now, I mentioned earlier that the use of toledot implies the bringing forth or generation of things. And I also spoke about the possibility that this particular one may not follow a linear chronology or a direct succession format as per the other toledot examples that we find in Genesis. And the reason for that should be clear now as we consider that the Toledot in question is in fact that of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And in that text from Genesis 1, because things were brought forth from the earth predominantly, you can understand the use of Toledot. And even though we have that specific term, as I mentioned last season, we have no guarantee that the successive days of the creation week are necessarily in a chronological order. So that's why I mentioned the possibility that the Toledot doesn't by necessity imply succession. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's pretty awesome, and that's the kind of stuff that you just never really pick up on, you know, when you're just sitting there reading through your English translation. It would have been pretty easy just to read on right past verse 4 without a second thought. Yeah, well, I've, certainly I've been guilty of that in the past, uh, you know. That's, yeah, the pitfalls of reading in English, I suppose. Uh, so anyway, let's move along. Lord God appears in Genesis 2 and 3 and in chapters 14 through 24. He is the Lord God of the man and the woman. He is the Lord God of Abraham. This is the name we find in relationship with particular entities. Later in scripture, he's the Lord God of Israel. So it's not just necessarily for individuals, but it is still a specific group, not a generic application. And in fact, we can speak of Israel as a single entity because God himself calls the nation of Israel his son. That's from Hosea 11, verse 1. It seems to me more like we're supposed to understand this term, Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, as one of intended relationship. This is the relationship we're supposed to have with God. It's not always what we have. For that reason, Yahweh Elohim is often called God's covenant name. But I'm going to suggest that as far as the primeval history is concerned, God's name is reserved only for those with a certain job to do, as we'll see later in this season of the podcast. God's name isn't always associated with covenant making. As an example, let's look at the Noahic covenant. So after the flood, God makes a covenant, uh, which we find in Genesis 9. And I'm going to read from verses 8 to 17. The NIV. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. And that's the end of the reading. So even though God makes a covenant after the flood, it's not on that personal level. The Noahic covenant is really broad. God makes covenant here with Noah, Noah's sons, their descendants, all of the animals that were on the ark, all life by extension, the earth itself, and all generations to come. So that's basically all creation on earth, not in the heavens or the waters, though. Did you notice that? We won't get into that here, but if you're up to speed with our first season, you'll know, and that's why I prefer not to refer to Yahweh as the covenantal name of God, but as his personal name. The Noahic covenant is not personal. Getting back to that issue of structure in chapter 2, verse 4, 
we're about to get our first taste of Eden. Now, you mentioned uh, that this text seemed a little repetitive. The verse is structured specifically to introduce the concept that defines Eden by first giving us the heavens and the earth, as we saw in chapter 1, then reversing that order to give us the earth and the heavens. And the purpose is that the listener might take those concepts and fold them in on themselves, centred around the person of the Lord God in the middle and showing that he, and by extension his abode, is the centre of everything. Don't get scientific about it. It's not science. We're not doing geography here. But again, we'll tackle that later. The original purpose of Eden then is to be the place where God exists at the centre of the heavens and the earth in the place where they meet. But please don't get me started about dimensional portals and stargates and all that kind of science fiction rubbish. The spiritual world is not separated from ours geographically, but we'll talk more about that in future episodes this season. This is about where God condescends to his creation, and it is in that sacred space that should we enter, we would encounter Yahweh Elohim personally. What a beautiful thought. Now, in Robert Alter's translation of Genesis 2, verse 4, it reads as follows. This is the tale of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord God made earth and heavens, going on through verse 8 from here, continues the sentence. No shrub of the field being yet on the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused rain to fall on the earth, and there was no human to till the soil. And wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned the man humus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living creature. It's a nice translation. You can see how 4b is actually the beginning of a much longer sentence that introduces us to the man. But I can't help but point out that what Alter really should have done is rather than say the Lord God fashioned the human humus from the soil, we should have got the human dust from the humus. But we'll talk more about that in the coming episodes. Hey, Chris, I was just thinking about the format of the show and how we like to break it up with different segments to keep it interesting. And I thought to myself, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just kind of needs a little variety to give it a little bit of local flavour, I suppose. And it wasn't until the other day when there was a TV special on air uh, celebrating 50 years of the iconic Australian variety show, Hey Hey, It's Saturday. I thought that was really influential. So just before we get into our deeper dive segment, that we've been running since we started back in season one. Maybe we should rename the show to Hey Hey It's Giants. What do you reckon? I reckon 99% of our listeners won't get that reference. Well, that's too bad. It was a wonderful show. I think we all suffered a great loss when that show got the gong back in 99. I've had a dicky knee ever since. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh boy. It's time for a deeper dive beyond the pages of the book, Answers to Giant Questions. And what are we exploring this time, Tim? Hopefully no more hey-hey jokes. That would only leave us with red faces. Oh, boy, there's another one. Uh, Right, yes, moving on. So in episode 157 of the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, Emily mentioned something about Eden and sacred space. 
and how we need to understand Ezekiel 28 as part of the larger picture of what was going on there. We're going to get into all this in great depth in the course of this podcast, but that's going to be next season. We might touch on it soon, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll certainly have a more in-depth treatment of it. But Emily knows by now she can drop a hint or refer a person who's got a giant question over to me and I'll cover it. And she gave this episode a plug in advance because I told her I'd do it. So let's explore the thought that Emily brought up on her show. And by the way, thank you, Emily, as always, for giving me a shout out. Now, Emily is, of course, very familiar with all of this stuff. So I'm not doing this for her benefit by any means. But since she raised it, I thought it'd be fun to talk about it. And the issue at hand is what's going on with the prince and the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28? Are we potentially dealing with giants or something related to that? Naturally, we need to read the text first. So here it is. This is Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 19. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, Therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised, by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. 
Grim words indeed. Now, according to Phoenician records, the king of this time was Ithabal III, called Ithabalus by the historian Josephus. The prophecy has been dated shortly before the siege of Tyre by Nebuchadnezzar II during the reign of Ithabal III. Since the city of Tyre was on an island, it proved difficult to conquer by military means. So Nebuchadnezzar ordered his troops to simply place rocks in the water until they could march across a man-made causeway into the city of Tyre where they laid siege to it for 13 years. The security and prosperity of Tyre was so significant that it endured the 13 years under siege conditions and yet remained undefeated militarily, with Nebuchadnezzar's victory coming about by diplomatic means after all was said and done. The successor to Ithabal III was named Baal II, vassal to Nebuchadnezzar. So it's understandable then that the pride of Tyre and its greatness and security and prosperity was unsurpassed in the ancient world. The Tyrians may have mocked Israel at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, but Israel soon had the last laugh when Ezekiel's prophecy came true. Not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar's campaign proved so successful and his strategy so effective that it was repeated some 300 years later when it was Alexander the Great's turn to conquer the world and Tyre with it. By the way, the city of Tyre is now part of the mainland because of the building up of that causeway and the siege works that were built to conquer it. So when you look at the city of Tyre on a map, you can actually see where it was built out into the ocean so that people could walk across uh, to the island. Just as a side note, about the mention of Daniel in this first part of Ezekiel's prophecy. don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it is quite interesting because as time marches on and we learn more about the book of Daniel, we're finding out that an early date for Daniel, that is a 6th or 5th century BC date, is becoming increasingly more solid, despite the best efforts of 19th century German scholars to insist to the contrary. But this actually throws up a problem for Ezekiel because now we have two contemporary figures, one of whom seems to have become legendary in his own lifetime, enough to be referenced by Ezekiel, whose audience may not have even heard of Daniel yet. A possible solution to this apparent anachronism is that the name Daniel is mistranslated, and is supposed to be read as Danel, a figure well known to the inhabitants of Phoenicia and Tyre, as Canaanite cities familiar with the literature of Ugarit. Since the Ugaritic literature was only discovered in the 20th century, there is a long history of not having any cultural context in which to place the name Danel. So it was thought to be a misspelling of the Masoretic text for a long time before archaeology revealed the truth. The character Danel was also considered to be a wise man who had close connections with the god Rapiu. And of course, if you've read my book, you know where all that leads. If you want source material for that, you can look up the Epic of Akkad, which dates to the 14th century BC. And you can find translations online quite readily to read about this legendary character called Danel, or as his name is translated, Man of God. It's a little off topic, but I thought it was worth mentioning for apologetic value. And it's kind of cool, so in case you hear somebody raise the objection that Ezekiel must have a late date if it references Daniel, then you know what to do with that. That is interesting and good to know. So is that the same as in Ezekiel 14, where he refers to Noah, Daniel, and Job? 
Yeah, that's right. All three are supposed to be non-Israelites for the purpose of comparison against the Jews. And again, it's the same spelling in the original where the Yod that would normally translate to the letter I in Daniel isn't there. We've got to think about kingship in functional terms to really understand this properly because the king isn't just a case of being the guy who sits on the throne with a crown on his head. Being the king means that you are the one who executed the function of king. And in the case of these ancient Near Eastern cultures where the king is thought to be the embodiment of a god, it's the god who is king and the man is representative of the god who functions as king and acts in that capacity. Embodiment in this sense is much like the Christian notion of the embodiment of Christ in the church. We call the church the body of Christ because it is the physical means by which the will and power of Christ are exercised in the world. And likewise, a believer who has the spirit of God acting within him acts on behalf of God as his representative. In a similar fashion, in the ancient world, a king imbued with the spirit of a god acts as a body of the god and works on his behalf. The king acts as the embodiment of the deity of the region, so the territorial god appointed over that nation by the Most High is seen as manifest in the king, and thus the king and the god are viewed as one and the same and can be addressed as such. Ezekiel calls the king out on his humanity by reminding him that he is just a man and not a god, but the fact is that the God Ezekiel really wants to talk to is lurking in the background, and that's why he makes the transition from prince to king. Another way to see this is as a father-son relationship in the royal court. According to this aspect of the cultural framework, a son or prince has, to a significant degree, the authority of his father, the king. And in this capacity, he's to be honoured and obeyed as though he were king. In the ancient world, kingship was solidified by having an heir apparent. So a prince secured your rule as king because it meant there's no point threatening the king's rule as it won't overturn his dynasty. The son will take over and the prince will carry on as the new king. In this context, the guarantee of the kingship of the god, the way that the god establishes his will in the world in a material sense is the, the man who sits on the throne so that man is effectively a prince to the god king. This is a bit complex, I know. This is why Ezekiel begins by addressing the human king, belittling him by calling him the prince, reminding him that he is a human, but then he seems to start talking right through the prince to the actual king of Tyre, the deity behind the man. We have a situation where Ezekiel is the man speaking to the man on the throne, but through them both, Yahweh is speaking to the God in charge of the city of Tyre. So who is this God? Hmm, this is Melkart, the Phoenician god, a chief deity of Tyre. He was also called the Tyrian Baal. Under the name Malku, he was equated with the Babylonian Nergal, god of the underworld and death and thus may have been related to Moat, known from Ugaritic literature. You can also find uh, Moat referred to in the Old Testament. Basically, he's Lord of the Dead, and there's our Genesis 3 connection to the serpent. 
So Melkart was usually depicted as holding an Egyptian Ankh, symbol of ascent to divinity, and we talked about that in episode eight back in season one. And as a symbol of power over death, a fenestrated axe, which just means an axe with holes in it. His sanctuary in Tyre, described by the Greek historian Herodotus, who actually called it the Temple of Heracles, was believed to have been the model for Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. That's not really a surprise when we consider that it was Hiram, the king of Tyre, who supplied all the materials at the request of Solomon to build that temple. However, the temple to Melkart also featured a world-renowned garden enclosure. If that's true, then Yahweh's temple was a mockery of the one dedicated to Heracles slash Melkart slash Baal slash Satan, but at a higher elevation. Classic stitch up. Yeah, and it's no wonder the Satan was so uh, keen to tear that temple down. Yeah, totally. That enclosed garden, by the way, that, that is exactly the kind of thing that the concept of Eden is connected to. A walled garden enclosure in the exilic period was known to the Assyrians as Pardesu from the Proto-Indo-European Perdei, surrounded by walls. That's where we derive our English word paradise. In Hebrew, pardes means orchard, whereas the Assyrian pardesu meant domain. So bringing all of this together, the idea of a royal garden enclosure in sacred space, remember that the king himself is an embodiment of a god, is a perfect description of the Garden of Eden. And that means that speaking of Melkart, god of the Phoenicians, as being in the Garden of Eden, serves double duty as both historical fact and cosmic geographical reality as a reference to the primeval divine rebel. So you can see now how Satan can be in the garden and also described as a sea monster inhabiting the depths because Tyre is an island city. So what's all this talk then about trade and traffic, merchandise? Well, the power of Tyre lay in its wealth and its location as a seaport, which made it a natural trade centre. Through trade agreements with all the major nations in the region, the city of Tyre was influential, held the loyalty of much of the world in the palm of its hand because of its control over commerce and trading in the region. As we look at the book of Revelation and all the talk about the mark of the beast, we find that the Antichrist similarly holds power over trade and commerce. So we should be able to see a clear pattern that it is the materialistic nature of the nations and their love affair with wealth, prosperity and comfort that guarantees their allegiance to the God of Tyre. In the same way, the God of Israel demands our loyalty and the only hope that Satan has of minimizing God's victory is by maintaining the allegiance of the nations against him and even the elect, if that were possible. All right, so... That's all very interesting, but it doesn't answer the question that Emily was kind of hinting at, which is this human king, the the man that Ezekiel derides as Prince of Tyre, is he somehow connected to the Nephilim because of this supernatural connection to the gods? Well, in times gone by, back in the days of Noah and the ancient post-flood kings of the Assyrians, the Babylonians and the Akkadians, we might have been able to witness kings who may have actually been real giant-sized humans. But scripturally, we see no evidence of giants after the time of King David. So by the time of the exile, the giants had been extinct in the land for many years. 
perhaps some of the Rephaim persisted outside of the lands known to the Bible, but since we have no biblical evidence of that, for obvious reasons, we have to leave that speculation or the hard sciences. These Rephaim kings, through a religious ritual association with the ancient gods of old, known to the Babylonians as the Apkalu, were able to invoke the spirits of the dead Nephilim to inhabit their bodies and make them into demigods. However, this short window of history was closed when God took action to limit the power of these fallen sons of God and cut off the access they had to be able to empower the kings in this way. And you can read about that in, of course, the book of Ezekiel and chapter 31, which you will know very well if you've read my book because I explained it in depth there. And we'll just have a quick look at Ezekiel 31 from verses 10 to 18 in the ESV. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death in the world below, among the children of man, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit, and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, to those who were slain by the sword. Yes, those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory and greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised, with those who were slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. So we got the uh, classic cosmic tree imagery there. In this instance, the prophet is speaking to the pharaoh about an entity known as the Assyrian. Did anyone notice the reference to Assyria in Genesis 2 when we were reading that earlier? Without the power of the rebellious sons of God to effect the transformation into Raphaim giants, the human kings are left relatively powerless as mortal men beholden to the whims of the gods. And that's why Ezekiel reminds the Prince of Tyre of his humanity. Ultimately, he is still a man who was created to be inhabited by the one true God and to be his representative. Pagan kings maintained the rhetoric of the Apkalu traditions and claimed descent from them to legitimize their claims to divinity. But by this point in history, there was no substance to the claims. Yeah, that is that passage from Ezekiel is really... Um, yeah, quite a complex one to, to grasp. 
because you sort of have to get all that imagery. You know, when we talked in um, in the first season about waters and stuff being the uh, the abode of certain spiritual powers. Oh, yep. Yep. Uh, and you've got the, the deep being sort of the bad place, if you like, and the, mm. the good guys are, are up in the sky. And then you have these trees in, in Ezekiel 31, and it, it's, it keeps getting repeated, this uh, drinking water, trees mm. that drink water. And what, what they're trying to get at is that the, the trees are kings, and the kings are drawing their power from beneath. They're drinking that water they're getting that power from the bad place you know they're relying on this spiritual energy that they're tapping into uh independent of god and drawing on uh, spirits that were believed to reside in the deep so yeah that's that's really what's going on there and uh we're going to talk a lot more about that as we get further into this whole Garden of Eden thing and start talking more about it. If any of this still isn't making sense to you, don't worry, because as we continue our study of Genesis 2 through this season, it's all going to become very clear, and you'll see the complex fabric of ancient Near Eastern imagery at play throughout the scripture and the story behind the giants. So stick around. Indeed. Looking forward to it. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. So we've gone from four score, four scores, four score and seven years ago. So we've gone from, <laughs> so we've gone from four. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Hey, I'd said that reference. I still remember Plucky Duck. Oh yeah, Plucky Duck, Plucky Duck. Who's it? It's not a chicken nor a gal. It's him right now. Was it the, uh, the the frozen chickens they used to the chicken? Yeah, yeah, the chicken wheel. <laughs> Maybe riding his bike to pedal the. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, uh, good times. 50 good. years. Man. Yeah. And they would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for your little papity boop Hey, Jude.
Okay. I watched jazz on Friday night, so I've still got some in my system. I had an espresso martini. <laughs>